Scott Pianowski of Yahoo Sports joins us for our Bold Predictions extravaganza. Plus, we discuss player risk and we debate how to correctly price at Alberto Mondesi. Beat the Shift is next. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruven Guy. How are you, Ruven? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. It is opening day of baseball. We are finally here. How's your draft season, Ruven? Draft season went well, I hope. I mean, you can't go by the first day of the season, but, you know, you got to, you know, live with the good and bad. If you have Luis Castillo, you have to live with that. If you have... Um, Travis Shaw, you have to live with that also. So we'll see. It's a long season. Yep. Uh, the Mets game got postponed uh, and won't even be made up uh, tomorrow. So we'll have to wait at least till Saturday for their opening day, which the Mets are always pretty good at. Um, yes. Well, we've got a great guest tonight um, from Yahoo Sports, Scott Pianowski. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Oh, delighted to have you. Um, FSWA award winner last year for podcast of the year. Phenomenal show you do. Uh um, what, what, what's your secret to, to, ha- to, to, to being so successful with it? Well, I, I, I appreciate that. Um, we, we did the show for two years. Unfortunately, we're, we're not actually doing a show this year, but we're hoping to have a show back next year. But we were nominated both years, and we won one of the years, which, I mean, any of the shows that are nominated, you guys have been nominated, I believe, and you know, the Baseball HQ pod is so good, and the work that Derek Van Riper is doing at The Athletic is excellent, the Sleeper in the Bus podcast is so good. It's all about just trying to have a good conversation and get as many interesting guests as you can get on your show. And what I would like to do on my show is, is do two things. One, I really want to tee up my guests for them to lean into the stuff that they were passionate about or they were knowledgeable, especially about, and let them talk. And one thing that I really took a lot of pride in is we always threw some lighthearted stuff in my shows. And we, had, we, we would do a silly draft at the end of the show that sometimes would be about sports, but sometimes it wasn't. I think one time we drafted holidays or days of the week or something. I mean, we, we just would let our hair down and be a little bit silly because this is all supposed to be fun. Um, and, and that's why I'm, you know, today, opening day, I, I got to tell you, I, it's just, it, it feels like a holiday to me. And I, opening day is always fun. And, you know, I, I've lived in a northern climate for most of my life. So the spring is always, you know, you're sick of the winter. You want to go outside. You want to start being active again. You know, I know you're a softball player. I like to play golf. I mean, I'm looking forward to all that. But after the year we had last year with with the COVID and with the baseball and, and the unrest with the labor situation, we weren't sure if there'd be a season. There were all these COVID cancellations and it was a mess of a season. They got something together. It, it almost felt like an extended tournament to me. I, I don't mean to denigrate the Dodgers who are an unbelievable team. And it, it's a shame we don't get to see what they might have done last year in a full season. But today, the, the Mets and Nationals aside, uh, and I guess there was a rain out in Boston, but you know, we get most of the teams in action and you know, we get to see our players play. And, you know, some guys did great. Some guys didn't do so hot. And, you know, we'll try to keep our feet on the ground with that while, while still being open-minded to what sea changes may be. But I just, knowing that we're probably going to have six months of baseball and, and a quote-unquote regular season this year, it, it just feels invigorating to me. There, there are friends I know who are longtime fantasy baseball players who didn't play last year. They just, they didn't, they couldn't get into it. They couldn't get excited about it. They had other things to worry about. And I'm not saying we don't still have things to be concerned about. Everybody knows what's going on in the country right now. But I feel that 
the optimism that we have now that we didn't have 12 months ago, man, I needed it. I really needed a day or a month like this where we could all feel good about something and enjoy something collectively. Cause that, that's really what it's all about. You know, just trying to get some joy out of this game. Yeah. A hundred percent. You know, I run the uh, local softball, the, sorry, the, I run softball also, but I run my local little league uh, where I live here out in West Hempstead, Long Island, by the way, look it up. West Hempstead has won the world series, the little league world series two years in the 1900s. You can check that out. Um, but in any case, um, I didn't know if there if there's going to be a lot of interest going into the year because uh, we didn't run a, a program last year, and uh, are we going to have enough interest? I don't know. We, we we have the the most enrollment that I've had in the seven years that I've been running the league. Uh, people are just coming out in droves to play. Um, they want to. They want to get out there. They want to do normalcy more than anything else. Uh, um, so I'm really looking forward to to this year. And yes, it does feel like a holiday today. It's it's incredible. Um, so uh, t we are going to have fun today. Uh, it's our bold predictions episode, so you can't get more fun than that. Maybe we'll have some easy predictions, maybe some really zany out there. Ah, we'll see what we come up with. Uh, but first, as always, we start with our strategy section. Um, so we just finished the 2021 draft season. And just to just to review, um, what, what have you noticed, Scott, in, in drafts? Like what, what, what kind of draft trends and special things that you've seen for the 2021 season? I thought most of the draft pools I was in, most of the leagues I was in, prioritized pitching to a heavy degree that I hadn't seen before. And although I, I suspected before the draft season started that maybe people would be a little bit more laissez-faire about how they built their bullpens, I think there was a lot of proactivity to that too, to the point that you know, the um, Hendrixes and the, and the Chapmans and uh, and even the second-tier closers. I mean, I thought if we had talked two months before the season started. And we talked about bullpens. I would have been like, oh, yeah, I love this value on Ryan Presley. I can see myself getting a lot of him where it seems like he's slotted right now. And then the draft season came and went, and he moved up like a couple of rounds. And so I, I knew that I suspected that the starting pitching was going to be pushed up. But I think people were also thinking, I want to get, I want to come out of, I, I thought Rizal Iglesias was another guy that, oh, I really like the value on him. I can kind of take him at a, a price that isn't prohibitive. And then as the draft season went along, his ADP rose by a round or two. And it got to the point where I just didn't want to play that. So I was not as proactive chasing saves as a lot of other people were. Um, you know, obviously any strategy can work if you pick the right players. I did get involved in some of the brand name starting pitching. I was willing to take Jacob DeGrom as early as one or two overall in a, in a draft. I think we might be in agreement on that. I know we're in one mock draft where Derek Hardy took him first. I yeah. believe you had the second pick. I had the third pick, or maybe I had that flip-flopped. I was ready to take DeGrom, and he wasn't even there for me. But right, right. I think he's clearly the best pitcher to have and with the expectation i know it was kind of crazy that we didn't really know for sure until the season started that there wasn't going to be a dh but it, it sure sounded like the national league wasn't going to have a dh and i thought that was just the extra feather that the cherry on the top of the degrom sunday anyway long story short i thought as expected starting pitching became more and more prioritized in the market and i think the market also was very proactive to saves i think maybe to its detriment uh, I, I didn't, we'll see how I, I did. I mean, I, I tried to build my bullpens on a budget. I try, if I could get a solid closer, if I didn't think it was that expensive, I went for it. But I have, like a lot of people have, I have shares of Tampa Bay relievers or, or San Diego relievers or Kansas City relievers or Pittsburgh relievers. And I hope I landed on the right guys. I, you know, I, I have a Jake Diekman share here or there. We'll see how Hurt Rosenthal is. Uh, I tried to cobble together a lot of bullpens and I did not, I was not out drafting Hendricks. I was not out drafting Chapman. I, I didn't draft Josh Hader, who looked 
unhittable today, uh, which he often will, will look. If he's really going to be used as a dedicated closer for the Brewers, he looks like a fantastic pick. But those were my two strongest takeaways is how people handled the pitching pool. Right. Ruvain, anything to add? Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. A lot of second and third string relievers for, for possible closers were taken, but I think that has to do with the fact that a lot of players this year, that a lot of fantasy players are worried about uh, the starting pitchers throwing more innings, how many innings they're going to throw. So they're willing to take more, more of a chance and more of a risk on these relievers as opposed to possibly the starters. Another thing I noticed is a lot of prospects were taken a lot earlier this year than prior years. Why is that? I think it's possibly because last year we saw a lot of the prospects get brought up very quickly, and people tend to forget that usually prospects don't get brought up as quickly. I mean, yes, they can be brought up three, four weeks into the season, but people are drafting them as if they're going to be in their starting lineups right away. And a third thing I noticed, and I think this goes with every year, the spring training effect. When a player does really well in spring training, if you're in a slow draft— those players got, seem to get picked up almost daily. If, if a player hits a home run during spring training and all of a sudden that player will be picked in your in your draft or in your league that night, it just, it's just very odd to notice that. I know, yes, th- these are still draftable players, but it just happened to always work out that way. Yeah, no, interesting takes. And, and I agree with you, Ruvain, uh, about the prospects. Uh, I did feel like, you know, the Wander Francos and Kellenics, who've never played a game uh, before in the major leagues, there's a couple more of those darts that were thrown earlier than in a typical year. Of course, you know, you, you ha- didn't really have a minor league year last year, so um, it, it makes sense. Uh, I agree with you, Scott, that the pitching was pushed up. Um, I will say, though, that compared to NFBC, uh, it was uh, at about the same levels last year. What I think that is in the home leagues and other leagues it is now converging more towards the high money NFBC leagues. Like I, I, this this stuff has already been going on. Speed pushed up in the NFBC. That has been going on. I didn't notice any difference from the last two years for, for NFBC leagues, but home leagues pitching was pushed up a lot more. I did notice that. Yeah, that, that it's it's possible that just you, the NFBC has set the baseline, yes. and it's just going to be a you know kind of a slow gradual effect before that becomes more of a mainstream thing where you might see in a public league, you might see in a home league. It's funny you guys mentioned the rookies. In non-keeper leagues, I am almost notorious for just ignoring rookies because I play in a couple of leagues where people love drafting young talent and they love hitting on a new player, you know, a buzzy new toy, a shiny new toy, that I felt like the price would always be just so so prohibitive. I'd never want to, I, I almost didn't even have to think about when I wanted to draft these guys. And I found myself, I actually drafted Kelnick, and I, I know it looks like Kelnick. I, I believe it's actually Kelnick, even, even though it looks like it should be three syllables. I actually drafted him on a couple teams this year, and non one of them is a keeper league, one of them isn't. And that is something I never would have, the last 10 years, I probably haven't done that once in redraft, have maybe the buzziest rookie in all of baseball. Now, it's a little bit unusual, highly unusual, because of course, look, 2020 was the strangest year of our lives. But there's no minor league track. We don't know what the development curve was for these guys because they were, whatever they were doing was not recorded in most cases. There's no statistics to go by. So we can't say, okay, this player worked on this. This player got better at this, got worse at that. They were just basically out of sight, out of mind for a full season. So I, I thought it made it very unusual what to do with those players. And oddly enough with Kelnick, I suspect his timetable might have been sped up by the previous executive, you know, going on in front of the Rotary Club and putting his foot in his mouth and admitting that they wanted to manipulate his service time. Now, of course, he's in the minors now anyway, Kelnick is. But it, it's just funny that if that never happened, maybe there wouldn't be this public pressure to get him into Seattle, into Seattle uniform quicker than there normally would be. We know the Mariners don't design themselves to be contenders this year, but 
I found myself more open to him than I would have been in previous years. If we were talking a year or two ago, five years ago, I would have been like, yeah, he's going to be a great player someday. I'm not going to go after him. I'm not going to target him. This year, I was a little bit open-minded to it. Maybe, I don't know, maybe there's just been too many rookies recently that have popped and I've, I've never had the Tatises. I've never been the guy. I didn't have Soto his rookie year. I mean, maybe I just wanted to be in on it once and, and just have a share in case it pops. But usually I think they're bad plays in redraft because somebody's going to draft them at their peak. You know, draft them with the expectation, as, as Ruben said, that they're going to be up with the team right away or really soon after opening day. And a lot of times that just isn't the case. Yeah, no, I agree. And I play a lot like you. I rarely see a prospect come on my team in a redraft league. Um, we're in a keeper league, Ruben and I, and you know, t- only 10 teams, and we spent some money on Kellenic this year. It just felt right to do. Um, you know, I, it's, it's an aberration of uh, what's going on this year. I got to say this. I think he's going to be great someday. I, I think his floor might be Kyle Tucker. That's how, that's how much I'm in love with him as a prospect. Yeah. Yeah, well, we're Mets fans, so we try to ignore him. Sorry about uh, that. You know. <laughs> well, hey, you got something. Hey, you just signed. You know, you got the Lindor thing. I, I'm so glad yes. that isn't going to hang over us for the whole season, and just not going to be a talking point. And you know, oh, God forbid, he got off to like a two for twenty three start or something. I, it's just nice that I'm I'm not a Mets fan. I, I'm a Jacob Degrom fan. I love their TV um, crew. I think it's the best in the business, and I'm going to yeah. watch every Degrom start this year. And a lot of times, I'll just put their games on anyway because I love their announcers so much. But I don't enjoy talking about. I, I don't begrudge the players getting anything they can get, and I also understand the owners and the and the CEOs and the GMs have to run a business. I I get it. It's a business, but I'm glad that that's solidified and we can start talking about you know Lindor the baseball player and not how much money is he going to be making in, in 2031. I mean, I just want to talk about the fun stuff. Right. You know. You know that Gary Cohen is actually my uncle in real life, by the way. Is he really? No, it's April Fool's Day. Oh, okay, okay. I, <laughs> I I know Gary Cohen just a little bit. I he he of course is great at every sport. Um, he's done Olympic hockey. He's done college basketball. Is he still the St. John's announcer? I know he was at one point. Uh, he was. He was. Yeah, yeah. we we're, our paths be briefly crossed. He I'm sure he would not remember me. But when I was in college, he covered a couple of co- Providence college hockey games, and so I you know I might have uh, shared a word with him or two and just, I mean, he's, he's so funny and witty and obviously he's yeah. Ivy educated and everything. So I, I think he's about as good as you can get as an announcer. But Ariel, I, I thought you told me Steve Cohen, the owner of the Mets was your uncle. <laughs> yeah. Go for the money, Ariel. I mean, I mean, Gary's probably well off, but go, go for Steve, man. You, then you can get that Lindor money. You know what? Go, go, go to Steve Cohen and say, I want, I want Lindor plus, plus a million. Do what he, what Lindor did with tattoos. Play the yeah. price is right game. There, there you go. One dollar. There you go. Uh, I want to talk about Adalberto Mondesi. Um, first of all, Ruben, what what is the injury update with uh, Mondesi? Well, Mondesi, uh, he has an injury, and they said he's going to be out for about four, uh, a few weeks. They said and the most recent thing they said is that he's going to be out a few weeks. Let me pull it up right here. The, the oblique. Yeah, he he has an oblique issue, and he didn't have any issues during spring training. So it just this just came basically out of the blue. He was playing. They were talking about how great of a season he's going to have, how, how they expected him to do so well, and then all of a sudden this literally came out of the blue last second, right when everyone's rosters had to get locked and everything like that, so it screws up all the fantasy players. We Listen, we, we wish him well. He tends to be um, injury prone. He had the shoulder injury. He had shoulder surgery in the past. He tends to get injured, but I mean, if you can still have him at a good value, he's still valuable. He, he, uh, an oblique issue is usually, on average, a player, a, a non-pitcher is out for 35 days. 
In 2019, the average was the player was out for 35 days. So hypothetically, if he's a little below, it's only a few weeks, and he misses only three weeks, you're still going to get him the rest of the season because from the stats that I saw, the oblique issue does not affect speedsters. And a speedster who had it, a couple of years ago in 2019, John Birdie, he had the same issue. I'm, I'm not comparing the two. I'm just comparing based on their speed, and that's what they, they're on the rosters usually for. But John Birdie, he missed three weeks, uh, three and a half weeks with an oblique issue. He still stole 17 bases that year. So I don't think it's going to affect him. I just think that people are upset that they paid so much or they invested so much draft capital to get him. Uh, that's interesting to hear that uh, it, it won't affect his uh, running uh, that much. It's funny that um, you know when I put these notes together uh, about the show uh, and I sent it to Scott, uh, I was going to talk about Alberto Mondesi even before I knew about any kind of injury. Um, and you know, uh, for me personally, uh, the the injury doesn't really affect my thoughts on how I would or wouldn't draft him. Uh, you know, it's not a, it's not like uh, oh, see. Hey, uh, he's injured. Told you, you shouldn't have picked him. Now, I, I wouldn't have picked him from a risk perspective, but um, you know, I, I've heard you, Scott, on on SiriusXM talking and, and about you know how you think that um, drafting him uh, actually was. A, a very worthwhile pick uh, where he was going in the second round of this year. And I thought you gave a good explanation, and I thought we could uh, do a little bit of a debate uh, uh, about Mondesi on why it was worth the investment, and maybe I'll play the devil's advocate and show the counterpoint to why I think that he was way too risky to draft at his ADP. Sure. Um, and this is a worthwhile discussion, no matter that he's hurt, because you know, there will be other players who will have similar frames in the future, and yeah, you learn the best learning moments when we do this whole fantasy bit, whether it's a podcast, a radio show, or just two people talking at a bar, is you learn the most when you disagree with somebody who you respect and and you can hash out things. That's when we actually learn things. When everybody agrees on something, I don't know that anybody really learns anything. But I thought Mondesi was perfectly proactive for me, a pick in the late second round, early third round. I wasn't going to take him the first round, certainly, and I wouldn't take him early in the second round. But I was prepared to strongly consider him middle to end of the second round. I thought he was a great third-round pick. Oddly enough, I only drafted him once. And, and to be really tidy about it, I drafted him on my TGFBI team where I have Eli Jimenez in my third round. So mm. I, I guess I'm shooting for last place in that league. Uh, we'll see how the rest of the team goes. But the last two years, first of all, let me say this about Mondesi. The first thing you have to do with Adalberto Mondesi when you consider him as a fantasy player is divorce yourself or accept one reality. He is a much more valuable player for what we do, collecting stats, than he is for the Royals where they have to live with his career 284 OBP, his career 84 OPS plus, 16% below league average. He is not a great major league hitter by any stretch of the imagination. But he does a lot of things that we like. Now, for one thing, and there's been a lot of talk about the batting average risk that he supposedly has. The last three years, he's at 256, 263, and 276. Now, I know those come with horrible OBPs. He was under 300 last year. He was under 300 the previous year. And, and just 306 is this high watermark. And that's bad. That's a bad offensive player. But the Royals think Mondesi's good. They were prepared to start him batting third in part because he had such a great September and he's having such a great spring. There's no guarantee he would have been locked into that position. But if you look at what he's done the last two years, 161 games, and, I, and it's a fool's errand to project anybody to play a full season, especially a player like Mondesi, as you mentioned, who's had some injury problems in the past. But let's just, because it's convenient 161, let's just at least look at what's possible if this guy could stay on the field, what he's done the last two years and what essentially would be a full season, albeit, again, nobody plays really the full schedule. 
over that period, although 292 OBP stinks, he's hit 260, which actually won't hurt you in fantasy. He scored 91 runs. He's hit 15 home runs. He's driven in 84 runs. And of course, as we all know, that his calling card, he's stolen 67 bases and, and attempted 82 for that matter. He's been caught 15 times. So I looked at this guy as being maybe a poor man's Trey Turner, certainly a different batting average profile. And you know, Turner's always going to hit for a high average. Well, honestly, we have to admit there's downside to his batting average. But I blanched when people said, oh, well, he's going to steal bases and do nothing else. Like, well, his run production's actually been really good the last couple of seasons. Staying on the field has been a problem. But the reason why I liked him in TGFBI is that the idea in TGFBI is you want to try to win the overall. And I'm going to be, I used to be maybe 10 years ago, if we were having this discussion, I used to tell you, your early pick's going to be floor driven. Don't take anybody you perceive as risky. And, you know, don't get, don't start thinking upside until the middle of the draft kicks in or the later part of the draft. But, you know, don't be letting your hair down the second round. And I've slowly moved a little bit away from that. I still think I'm more probably of a floor drafter in the early rounds than maybe the average industry person or average NFBC person. But in the TGFBI, I said, you know, I'm just going to take a swing because I think if Mondesi can stay on the field, I think he could return first round value with an average that is probably going to be better than people expect. And he's not a zero in the power categories. He's not Malik Smith. And so somebody might say, well, if you draft him, you get to make a power elsewhere. Well, I expect the double digit home runs from him. It's not that different than Trey Turner, who probably is going to hit between 15 and 20 home runs. Monsey is a little less power than that. But I don't hear anybody who drafts Trey Turner and bemoans the fact, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm really screwed in power. You have the rest of your draft to try to figure that out. I thought he was an interesting upside play in the second round, or if you're lucky enough, in the third round, admitting that his floor was a lot lower than other players. And I'll just mention one other thing in his favor. He's an outstanding defender. So even if he got off to a poor start, his excellent defense would probably keep him in the lineup. Yeah, no, no doubt. Um, and I think maybe maybe the reason why I'm a little bit more sour on him is that I still believe in the floor argument that you know you need to have players with with a, a higher floor. But uh, here's my deal with him, and it's really about risk, and it's not just about Mondesi. I want to talk a little bit about pricing of risk in in general. Um, the number one rule I, – I'm in business, I'm in finance, I'm an actuary, as most people know. The number one rule of business is the greater the risk, the greater the expected return needed. Now, I didn't say that it's the greater the upside needed. I said it's the greater the expectation. You have to predict uh, if, if a player or, or in business, if, if, a, if a, an investment is risky, you need to expect a better return. Not just say, well, I can make a million dollars on this. You, you, ha- you should be expecting a bigger return. You know, when you play the stock market, the whole idea is you want to buy assets under their value and you want to manage aggregate risk in your portfolio. Uh, fantasy baseball is not exactly the same, but you know, by and large, a lot of these rules do apply. And just to talk about risk and about projections, when you look at a projection, the question is, what risk is already baked in? Like if you run, if you run an auction calculator and you come up with a price, and for the ATC projections, he comes up as the 25th best player, okay? Um, if you run that, the question is, what is baked in it? I think health risk is somewhat baked in, right? If you're projecting fewer at-bats for a player because you think he might miss time, that's one way. I mean, ATC's projected Mondesi for 537 at-bats. That's not exactly a full season. That's giving the you know some probability to the outcome of him getting injured, right? And even with that, he's projected at 52 stolen bases, which is a fantastic rate. Um, but, you know, with that, 
it's not taking into account all the risks. Um, there is process risk. Process risk is where, um, you know, because uh, there is a, a finite n- number of games and because, you know, anything can happen in a 162-game season, the outcomes, you know, aren't always going to be his true talent level. Mondesi is one of the most variable players. Uh, we can see outcomes, as you mentioned, in the first round, but he can also be a you know, 20th round player if he misses time or if he just decides not to steal bases. I mean, Rob Silver made the argument that if, if uh, you know, in order for him to keep up this stolen base pace, he has to actually do things that most even good base stealers don't even do. Um, and that is a risk which could just take him out of that. But it's more than just that in terms of pricing. When Even though you get a value for what your projections say, it doesn't take into account two other risks. There's parameter risk, and there's also categorical risk. Um, the parameter risk is where you just don't really know what his true expectation is. And when I'm doing ATC projections, I'm looking at a lot of different projections. I have some projections that predict him at uh, a, a 253 batting average, and some predict him at a 265. Some people have him projected for 40 stolen bases, and some over 60. Some people have 10 homers, some people have 24 homers. Um, there's a lot of variance in what projection systems think. And with that comes parameter risk that we just don't know his true reality. I mean, think about it. He was going to bat third, but what if he batted first? What if he didn't do so well like last year and they moved him to ninth in the lineup? Well, that makes a really big difference in his true talent for playing games. Um, so if you look at that, and ATC has a measure of measuring risk, a parameter risk, uh, it's one of the highest parameter risks there is. But there's also categorical risk. Um it's the risk of him missing, if he misses time, how it would affect your category balance, how it would affect your overall value of your rotisserie league because, you know, if you all of a sudden drop in, in stolen bases and it's a huge drop for Mondesi, that really cuts a lot of points, more so than some other second rounders who are being drafted at that same level. So because of that, if you do some risk-adjusted type pricing, I didn't find him to be the 25th best player. I found him to be closer to the 40th best player when you account for other risks which aren't in their projections. So be that as it may, I might have taken him in the fourth round, but nowhere near the second round. I think the risk is way, way too great for him. And Yes, he did get injured. That's not the reason why I wouldn't have taken him. It's the possibility of him getting injured. Um, and, of course, it did come to fruition for at least a month or so. Um, and Any response to that? I mean, it's very well reasoned, very well argued. Um, I mean, it's, it's no doubt. I, your, your actuary background is always easy to see when you discuss this stuff. That's why I, you know, I enjoy your podcast so much. At the times you've been on Patrick David's podcast, it, it's just excellent because it's such a smart way to approach it. You know, it's funny. I, I also had a flash that when you were talking about Mondesi, I thought about a player who reminds me a lot of Mondesi, even though his price, his tier was much different this year. I think of somebody like Byron Buxton, who's a lot like Mondesi in a case where there are some people who just don't believe that he's a good baseball player, that he's a good hitter. He strikes out too much. He, Last year, he had two walks in the, the whole season. I, I know it was a truncated season, and he missed some time, but still two walks is a tiny amount. And I was very encouraged. It's funny, I, and I was not really proactive on Buxton, but in one league that I run with my friend Scott Gleason, in a keeper league, there's, a, there's this portion of, there's like a pre-draft before the actual draft where you can pick players who were previously owned, who have different prices and all this stuff. 
and we had an option to pick up on Buxton if we wanted it. If I had to make the decision, I probably would have said no. But my partner really argued for Buxton. He wanted to have him. And, you know, when you're in a partnership, sometimes, you know, you just have to say, okay, you're passionate about this. I'm going to let you make the choice. And one game, don't know that one game is ever going to mean that much. But uh, not only did Buxton hit a home run on opening day, but he stole two, uh, he stole a base after stealing all of two bases last year. And he walked twice after walking twice all of two times last year. And let me just say for one day, I was really ha happy that we, we have Byron Buxton. I used to be the number one prospect in baseball. Another guy who's always going to have a job because he's excellent in defense. But nobody would be surprised if Byron Buxton was hitting 192 on May 1st. There's a lot of holes in his swing and he's had some horrendous slumps during his career. I'm just curious. Um, I'm not trying to, to bait and switch or, or you know flip the argument. I'm just curious. And obviously the price was a lot different. How did you approach Buxton this year? Yeah, I mean Buxton to me had had a much lower value than than what the market was going for, um, and he just as he said he had a lot of a lot of the parameter risk. He did not have as much categorical risk though as Mondesi. I mean he he is not a I see him more as a power hitter now than a stolen base hitter. And if you think about that, other than batting average, which you know. It, could be lower later in the draft. He's pretty even across categories. Um, he he comes out in the ATC projections as um, close to an average runs, close to an average RBIs player, low batting average, but a plus in homers and a plus in stolen bases. So uh, he fits a profile of a team better. Um, so I would not be opposed to taking him, but I generally had other outfielders I was interested in at the same price, and so I don't find him on my team. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I if not for my partner, I would be out on Buxton completely. And, and look, let's be realistic. I mean, after his walk rate last year, it's not like anybody expects him to have like a 12% walk rate this year. I wasn't sure what to do with the stolen bases because if a lot of the stolen base value, a, a lot of stolen bases in, in baseball are going to come from if a player is willing to do it, if he thinks it's worth the wear and tear in his body. I know that Mike Trout could steal 30 or 40 bases if he wanted to. I think if Mookie Betts wanted to steal 80 bases, he could. But they both know that the way baseball is constructed, it's just not worth it to go through. I mean, Trout's almost completely negated it from his game. And Mookie just runs in, in specialized circumstances now where, again, he, his stolen base total could be double or triple what it is. But he knows, and the Dodgers know, that the way runs are scored in baseball generally isn't about just getting from first base to second base. I mean, there's times you'll do it, but it's just infrequent now. Um, much like this, the stolen the uh, save situation, I find the scarcity of stolen bases to actually be. In, some people might say, "Oh, aren't, aren't you tense? You know, this, it's so hard to get stolen bases. We just lost Mondesi for maybe a month. You know, are, are people going to be panicky about stolen bases?" Remember, that means we need fewer to be competitive in the category, and it's easier to fix a team that's broken in stolen bases than it might have been in the past because there's just not the pool. You can get more impact if you get one guy who happens to run a little bit, or if you just collect a bunch of guys who are going to steal anywhere from like seven to 12 bases, that will help you. I actually find that reassuring, and I find it's less stressful to deal with saves and stolen bases. Some people say, oh, closers, are, I hate closers. Let's let's get holds in the league, or let's you make it four by four or five by four. I, I just don't want to deal with saves anymore. I actually find it less stressful to be chasing saves or... or evaluating ninth inning eighth inning than it used to be because I don't have to be I don't feel like I have to be right anywhere near as often as I did in the past to be competitive in that area well Scott you know I, I think you nailed it perfectly Byron Buxton is a great comparison to
to Monacy because Buxton is only two years older than Monacy. Monacy is in his 20, 25, 26 year season right now. Mon, um, Buxton is two years older than right now. If Buxton stayed healthy, then you would have the, probably the stolen base whiz that everyone thought he'd be when he came up. Mondesi, same thing. If he can't stay healthy, if he keeps getting these small injuries here, these misses time, he's going to turn into the Byron Buxton where he always has all this hype that he, he shows and, and flashes that he can steal these bases, but he never actually lives up to the hype. And it's going to turn out exactly what's happening to Buxton. Ariel, you mentioned that Buxton looks more like a power hitter now, and he's and he's, he's bulking up a little more, and he's showing more power. That's what Mondesi may turn out to be, because if Mondesi can increase his home run to fly by rate just a little bit, he can hit 25 yeah. home runs. He can hit that much. So the comparison is great. It's just that they're at different stages of their career. It's that Mondesi is where Buxton was two years ago, and we saw what happened when Buxton got injured. If the same thing happens to Mondesi, he may be on the same path as Byron Buxton. And you know who Buxton reminds me of? He reminds me of um, Carlos Gomez from a couple years ago. Very similar. Yeah, it's a great comp. Outstanding defensive player. Holes in his swing. is always going to strike out a lot. Um, Gomez used to remind me of just a little bit. They had different body types. Uh, although Gomez and Buxton have, I think, more similar body types, but I always thought Gomez had a little bit of Mike Cameron in his game, or a really good defensive yeah. player. Cameron was a stockier guy, had more natural power, could maybe in a good season hit 30 home runs. I think people forget how good Carlos Gomez was at his peak. I, he was a yeah. guy who, and it took a while, it took a trade, right? It took some time for him to figure it out. And then when it went south for Gomez, I'm sure some fantasy managers got bitten because they're like, well, I know he's better than last season. I'm going to give him a pass. And I think maybe the fantasy industry held on to, to uh, Gomez maybe an extra year longer with expectations, and then once he lost it, it, it felt like he couldn't play at all anymore. But I think Buxton and Gomez is an outstanding comp, and hopefully we'll see, because Buxton hasn't put it together yet and had the season that Gomez probably, I would guess, made an all-star team or two, or it would have at least been worth consideration when you throw in that defense. So I think that's a tremendous... I never really thought about that, but those it's funny how yeah. I can just see Gomez in my mind's eye, and he really does have such a similar tool set, offense and defense, to Byron Buxton. Yeah, and I think more of of the uh, the uh, progression, the career of being the big stolen base guy, and then morphing into the guy who has some speed but hits for power. So I I, I see that as the, uh, uh, the, the the big comp for me. Um, all right, I want to get into our bold predictions here. Um, you know, it's all about having fun, and uh, you know, this way we can predict 162 games when we did bold predictions last year. Maybe we're doing just a quick 60 game season. Uh, but uh, let's throw it out there, and maybe let's go around the room here. Let's get a bold hitter prediction and a bold uh, pitcher prediction from anyone, from everyone. Uh, all right, let's start with you, uh, Scott. What's a bold hitter prediction for 2021? It's, maybe it's easy to say this because he was active in the first game, but this is one of my most rostered players, uh, somebody who I got outside the 20th round in a lot of leagues, and I bet he's available in a lot of mixed leagues. I think Robbie Grossman is going to flirt with like top 40, top 45 outfielder value because he's going to be lead off most of the time for the Tigers. I think he has double-digit power. Uh, he's another guy who wants to steal bases. He's, not that he's going to steal 30, but I think he wants to steal maybe 15, 16, 18 bases. And his on-base percentage really plays well in that leadoff spot. It, it's a shame to see the A's give up. Uh, they gave up Grossman because I think they just decided they didn't want to pay him now that he had emerged a little bit and become more expensive of a piece because he seems like a quintessential Tampa Bay or Oakland player. You know, he's good at a lot of little things. He's not flashy, but you know, he's a switch hitter. You know, he he just has a lot a very wide, broad skill set, which I, I'm very attracted to those types of players. So I I think Grossman is going to significantly outkick 
his ADP coverage and, and if he's available right now in your mixed league, like a 12 team league, I, I think he's worth picking up right now. I like that one. Ruve? I actually have two bold. I mean, one is kind of not really bold, but two. Um, first of all, for the Texas Rangers, I think they will have two hitters, one in the top three in the majors and homers, one in the top three in the majors and stolen bases. That's Joey Gallo and Leody Tavares. We've seen the Rangers run, so I think Tavares will get his chance to steal. He's got plenty of speed there. And Gallo in that new stadium, I think he's going to have a field, a field day. But that's not that bold. My real bold prediction is Jock Peterson will lead the Cubs in home runs this year. With that swing and how well or not well both Chris Bryant and Anthony Rizzo have played the past couple of years, I think with, if Jock Peterson is able to play every day, he can lead the Cubs in home runs. And I don't have any shares of him anywhere. And if I see him anywhere, I'm, I'm going to take him because he. I saw him play today. He hit a ball out to, uh, he hit a ball out to left field. And if the wind wasn't blowing in, it would have been a grand slam. His swing is just so perfect for Chicago, and I think he's going to work out very well there. What do you give the probability of either Bryant or Rizzo being traded this year? Um, I th- I can see Bryant a better chance because he's, I, I don't know if Rizzo's in his last year of his contract, but Bryant is in the last year of his contract, and he was going to be traded. People, quote-unquote, wanted him. There are so many rumors over the offseason that he was going to come to the Mets, but you know what? I, I don't think people want that headache of having to maybe possibly trade someone for him and then lose him in the offseason because they may not want to sign him to a long-term deal because also of his history of injuries. Yeah, I think it's 50%. What about you, Scott? You think one of them will be traded? I, th- I think they're certainly going to be sellers. I mean, it's a weird division because uh, although nobody expects the Pirates to have any staying power, I think you can make a, a reasonable, plausible case for any of the other four teams in that division. Maybe winning. I, you know, it's funny. I, I was so open to Chris Bryant off a down season a couple of years ago and then last year. And I, I think I just hit my breaking point. And the price got really good on Bryant. And, you know, we'll see if he has a good season. I'll regret it. I love that Peterson call, by the way. I, I haven't gotten too granular what the Cubs are going to do with him full time if they're going to just live with what he does against left handed pitching. But I think my friend Gene McCaffrey, who has published his own fantasy baseball work for a long time and he's, he's now doing his work at the athletic one of my all-time favorite people in the industry and somebody who's thinking i think lines up a lot with me our process is very similar he's always said that when players are platooned and then if they get put into a full-time job what happens very commonly and he studied this he's you know he's got the the data and the math to, to back it up is what happens a lot of times with guys who platoon and i realize part of this is survivor bias because if you stink at anything they're going to get rid of you anyway but it's common where somebody may be a lefty, they platoon him, he doesn't play against left-handed pitching, then he finally goes somewhere where he plays all the time, and what happens is they hit righties better, because now they, they don't, you know, maybe it's not their head isn't being messed with, or maybe their timing gets in a better groove, or whatever it is. I think Jock Peterson, if the Cubs would just say, look, you're our guy, we know you weren't a full-timer with the Dodgers, we need you in the lineup every day, if they would just leave him alone, even if he hit 210 against lefties, or 195, I don't care. I think he's going to mash righties so much, I think he's a great call. I, I think the market gave you a very nice price on him. There's a ton of upside. I don't like Reuven. I don't think I have a share of, of Peterson anywhere, but I wish I did. I, I think he was a really good value. And at, at the time you're drafting him, if, if he just does anything, if he just stays on the field and, and isn't a total bust, you'll probably get your investment back. And I think he's a, a, the rest of it is just room for upside. I think he's a great recommendation. Where was this, uh, where was this analysis uh, a month ago, Reuven? 
Um, it was not <laughs> yet available. That's why. It, it's, no, it's, it's, it's listen. It, it's a matter of seeing how they do in spring training, how they evolve right, during right. the course of that, and and just you know seeing how comfortable they are with the team and how the team wants to actually play them. Like if like if no more Mazzara, he couldn't find a place to play in when he was with the White Sox. They always kept taking him out. Same with the Rangers. They kept platooning and platooning him. You don't know what his full potential is unless unless he's able to play full time. Right. And he more he had I think two or three straight twenty home run seasons. Just as a platoon, which is just crazy to think about. What if he played a full season? What would happen then? Yeah, no, it's a really great call. I'm going to go with uh, Franmil Reyes. Uh, I will predict that Franmil Reyes will out-earn Yoan Moncada, even though their ADPs are about five to six rounds apart. Um, I think Franmil Reyes is Adam Dunn, but in a good good Adam Dunn year. Like Adam Dunn would have those years where he would hit about 35, 40 homers, and uh, he would have 210 average, and then some years he would have like a 260 average. I think Franmil Reyes is the good year Adam Dunn every year. Uh, I think he's about a fourth-round player that you're getting way, way down in, in the 10th, 11th rounds of, of drafts. And by the way, doesn't he correlate nice with Gallo? Because there's a lot of, I'm not going to say they're the same type of hitter, but they have a lot of similarities where Gallo, more valuable in OBP leagues. And even when somebody when somebody has batting average risk, remember, it's always a range of outcomes with that average. There's wide error bars on that. Even somebody who whose true batting skill you might think is like 230, 235, there's no reason why Joe, Joe Gallo might, hit, might not hit 268 one year. Yeah, and I think there is actually no there is no um, batting average risk, risk with Gallo because I think that the price that you're paying for him already incorporates hitting hit, hit, him hitting two ten. Like there's no there's no downside from where he's being projected. He's not being projected for two thirty, and you say, well, he could be two fifty or two ten. He's being projected at two ten. Uh, so there is no risk for for Gallo. I don't I don't have a lot of contacts inside baseball. I used to be a beat writer for the Tucker Red Sox, and I knew I knew a few people. I knew some writers. I knew some. I, I could, you know, have some Rolodex numbers and, and claim to have inside information. Those days are over. But I do know somebody within baseball, I'm not going to say his name, but it would be somebody everybody would recognize who, who's now working for a team who every once in a while will just whisper something to me. And he begged me last year to draft Gallo. And, of course, Gallo got hurt and he had, like, a messed up season. But or maybe it was two years ago. But he was, he was saying how the imp- he'd become a much more complete hitter and he could hit the ball out to any part of the park. And he was... Uh, he was on the verge. It was basically, the storm clouds were assembling, and there was going to be an avalanche of rain. I mean, he was just going to have a monster season. And I still think we have. I still think there's going to be one year we're all going to look back and be like, "Man, I wish I had Joey Gallo this year." Or, "Oh yeah, yeah, of course I didn't win my league. I didn't get Gallo." I, I feel like there's that year is coming, I- and I don't know that I have him anywhere. I don't think I do. So I'll have to play him in DFS or or get invested some other way if it tends to happen. But I think he's a great speculation play for where he went. For sure. And uh, just a, the side point, since we're talking about Gallo, you know, according to the ATC volatility metrics, he has a very low variance and a negative skew, which means that projections are pretty close to each other. And yet there's some one projection outside that's downward, meaning most projections are even higher than the ATC average. Um, very few people have that combination of really excellent both skew and standard deviation, and he does. Uh, Pete Alonzo, by the way, has it also. Uh, nice pick. But uh, Fran Moraes really is the guy, and I'm, I'm down on Yoan Moncada. I mean, he, he had that one really good year where he had a uh, 315 batting average, which, by the way, was all BABIP-aided. It was 406 BABIP is, is uh, historically high. He's never hit more than 231 in any year Moncada. Uh, I, I, he has got a 31% strikeout rate. 
didn't even attempt a base last year. Um, I mean, Fernando Reyes has more stolen base attempts in spring training than Yoan Moncada this year. Uh, I can't see how those two were uh, picked, 75 to 80 picks away from each other. I think Fernando Reyes is a very undervalued player. He's going to be returned fourth-round value. I will say one thing about Moncada, and, and this takes nothing away from all of your salient points about Reyes, but... Remember that Moncada got COVID early in last season. He basically said that he never felt right. And I know it's, maybe it's convenient for somebody to say that. When a player doesn't do well, you may want to have a convenient excuse. But I believe that, that certainly I have no problem taking that on good faith. That And, and I, look, I know it, it's only natural that if, if somebody who maybe you believed in didn't have a good season, you just want to write it off to how unusual the year was or if they had COVID or something like that. But I think you had to at least factor that in when you were pricing him in draft season. Totally. Freddie Freeman also had a bad case too. Um, then he won. Then he won the MVP, right? You know. Yeah. So, I, I mean, mean, so I, I'll I'll believe Moncada's word, um, but I, I still think his track record is poor, despite even just the 2020 year. Um, let's do pitchers. Bold prediction from you, Scott. Yeah, I'll give you. I'll start at the top of the of the pile, and then I'll give you a really obscure guy. Not that anybody needs help that Jake Degrom's good, but I actually think at 100 to one, he was a really interesting MVP pick. I think he's capable of dominating pitching in a way because the way a pitcher wins MVP is he, he's going to need somebody. The season's going to have to flow a certain way where no offensive player separates from the pack. And then the pitcher has statistics that are portable in a way because he's separated himself so much from the other pitchers. And of course the national league has a, has a ton of, of talented arms. There's probably more interesting Cy Young candidates on the NL side than there are on the AL side, but man, the Buffalo just tied the Rangers with three seconds left. What a choke by the Rangers. <laughs> I think I, I would have taken DeGrom first overall in a draft. I think he's going to win the Cy Young, of course, which is no bold prediction, but I think he offered great value. I think this is going to be like his Sergeant Pepper year, to, to, to use a phrase Michael Salfino might use. It's the best Mets team they've had since the World Series team. I think it actually might be better. The lineup is so deep. DeGrom's been grossly unlucky. I'm projecting, I'm, my bold prediction was that he was going to win 20 games and be an MVP contention. And remember, his, his career high in wins, for as great as he's been, has only been. 15. So I think it's going to be, this is going to be the one year we're going to look back and say, yeah, DeGrom's always great, but the one year he really absolutely blew everybody away was this year. That's my prediction on him. So everybody's like, oh, great. We, thanks, Pianowski. You told me Jacob DeGrom is good. What else you got for me? Is, is, Juan, <laughs> so, is Juan Soto good too? I'll give you a player most people probably haven't thought about at all. And it's a, a pitcher, um, right-handed pitcher for the Pittsburgh Pirates, David Bednar, who I will admit I knew nothing about a few months ago. Two walks, eight, I'm sorry, one walk, 18 strikeouts, and eight and two-thirds spring innings. And I know a lot of spring doesn't mean anything. I still look at walks and strikeouts because those stats stabilize quickly. I also want to look at who's running and who isn't running. Uh, Ryan Bloomfield had a great uh, chart on one of his Twitter threads talking about what teams were taking advantage of stolen base opportunities. Every year we see relievers that we don't know a thing about figure things out. They scrap a pitch, they add a pitch, new pitching coach, old pitching coach, new spot in the rubber, different role, whatever. And Nick Anderson, two years ago, nobody knew a thing about this guy other than his career kind of fizzled out. He'd had some problems off the field. He was a wipeout reliever. And then last year, Devin Williams was one of those guys. And this is just the top of the list. I mean, there's always going to be a bunch of them. And I say, you don't want to draft last year's Nick Anderson or last year's Devin Williams, although the you know, Devin Williams should be good. And I would have thought if Nick Williams, uh, if Nick Anderson hadn't gotten hurt, he would have been fine too. But there will be players you've never heard of who all of a sudden they're on your waiver wire with two walks and 12 strikeouts. You're going to want to pick those guys up. I think this guy Bednar, who looks very, 
<coughs> excuse me, very good opening day. Two strikeouts in a clean inning. I think he's going to be one of those out-of-nowhere, fire-breathing dragon relievers who's valuable in the deeper mixed league. He hasn't had a, a year where he didn't have a swinging strike rate less than 14%. That's, that's pretty good. Yeah. Awesome. Ruvain, yours. So I have one minor bowl prediction and one major bowl prediction compared to what Scott just said. First of all, the minor bowl prediction is that I think only two pitchers will hit the 200 inning mark. I think it's going to be Trevor Bauer, and I think it's going to be Lance Lynn. I think those are the only two pitchers who will get to the 200 inning mark for all pitchers throughout baseball. But my major bowl prediction, and this will go against almost all prognosticators so far in baseball, I don't think that DeGrom will win the Cy Young. I think the Cy Young will be won by a former Cy Young Award winner who had the fourth best ERA in the NL last year, but he didn't qualify for the leaderboard because he didn't have enough innings, and that's Clayton Kershaw. Clayton Kershaw had a 2.1, a very quiet 2.16 ERA last year, and it was only 58 innings. He only played against the NL, NL West and the AL West, so now he gets the rest of the National League, which means he gets to pitch against that wonderful NL Central. He gets to pitch against... Um, then that the lower part of the lower echelon and the, le and the lesser hitting teams like the Marlins and stuff like that. So I think that Kershaw is a good bet to win the Cy Young if everything falls right. I think that he can be the one. I'm going to go with uh, another Met here. Edwin Diaz. I predict that he will lead all of Major League Baseball in saves. Um, first of all, when you're picking a closer, you have to have the role. There's a lot of spots, a lot of situations where we're unsure I'm pretty sure I know Edwin Diaz has the role here, and that's half the battle. Um, I don't think people realize how skilled he is and how unlucky he has been as a Met. Um, last year, he struck out 50 batters in 26 innings. That's almost a 50% strikeout rate. That is crazy good. It's better than Nick Anderson. Um, you know, if you, if you extrapolate that to uh, an entire year, which you really shouldn't do, but uh, if you did, he'd have 135 strikeouts. That's equivalent to about a fourth, fifth starting pitcher in fantasy leagues. And by the way, his ERA last year, a terrible year, he was 175. Um, the guy is, has been a lot better. Uh, talk about bad luck. His BABIP, his BABIP in the, as a New York Met over the last two years, 378. Now, if I said that a pitcher has a 325 BABIP over the last two years, that's like, oh, my God, he's been so unlucky. You know, batters can have higher, but pitchers should have pretty stable BABIPs. He's 378. That means that gods really don't like him. I mean, they, they just, yeah, we don't like you, Edwin Diaz. We're going to give you bad luck. That is incredible. Look at his home run to fly ball rate. Uh, as a Met, been 24%. As a Mariner, about half of that, about 12, 12.5%. Um, I think that, and he's so he's he basically being slapped both from the, both from the Babbitt perspective and from the home run rate. Uh, I think he's just been tremendously unlucky. His stuff is sizzling. He throws hard, gets strikeouts, um, and I think that the home runs I think are fluky. Uh, and Mets are going to be a good team. He's going to be in there all the time to get saves. We're talking forty something saves. I think it's going to lead the major leagues. And I hope a lot of those saves are for Degrom wins. There you go. Let me say something about the Kershaw uh, pick that that Ruben point, put out there. I'm all for Kershaw for his track record, for his ability, certainly for the supporting cast because the Dodgers. I don't think anybody would dispute they have the best roster in baseball. But worries me about everybody on the Dodgers, um, like the the top end guys, the Kershaw, the Buellers, the Trevor Bowers, all wonderful talents. 
is I get nervous, and maybe I, I overplay this card. I'll, I'll, I'll openly say that up front. But I think the Dodgers know. They've won, I don't know how many divisions in a row, seven, eight divisions in a row. San Diego's very good, and maybe San Diego can push them. But nobody expects Colorado or Arizona or the Giants to be legitimate contenders. And I feel like L.A. is already thinking, they'll never say this, but they're all like, yeah, we're pretty much in the playoffs already. So if Kershaw has the sniffles, or if Bueller's toe is bugging him a little bit, or Trevor Bowers, you know, got his back was cranky one day. I, I just think they're going to be very proactive with load management, very proactive with the injury list, and they're not going to want to tax any of their main arms because they're go- they're thinking, okay, we have so much talent, we'll we'll be in the playoffs. So let's just make sure we haven't worn down any of our aces, and then we'll throw that triple header, you know, th- those three studs at, at people in the playoffs. So I, I get a little bit nervous. Now, now, maybe this only means, you know, you lose 15, 20, 25 innings in the thing. I, I'm not saying they're going to throw 120 innings or something crazy. And I'm sure it's going to be really hard to get the ball out of any of their hands because they're such competitive players. But that did give me pause sometimes when I got to spots where any of them would have made sense. And I think I, I have a share of, of each of them on one of my teams. So it wasn't like I was a hard no. But I'm worried that... Again, when these things pop up, when a bump in the road pops up, the Dodgers are going to maybe pull back more proactively than a, a team that's fighting for its playoff life may do in the same situation. No, I, I agree. And the Dodgers have the depth to do that. Uh, they can throw Men in David Price. Yeah, they can throw in Tony Gonsolin. Um, there's plenty of arms that are fully capable starting pitchers that they can do that. Uh, um, Kershaw is, is they're just going to give him, and, and with Kershaw, they're not going to limit his innings per start. Like when he pitches, it's seven innings long. They're going to just skip him. That's what they're going to do. And they'll just have it. You rest. I think Bauer though is safe. I think Bauer is just, just crazy enough. And he wants to pitch on every fourth day. So the Dodgers will say, okay, you could pitch on every fifth day. We'll, we'll let you do that. Um, so I think plus, he also has. I think he also has an opt out in his contract. Yeah, so maybe he's pitching for next year. He's yeah, the Dodgers. The Dodgers year. may be thinking, you know, we want to make sure Trevor's happy here because we want him for a long term. I, I I think that may be part of it too. Um, yeah, or you or you can think that they're just going to push him because essentially he just signed a one or two year deal. Right. Right. So just just tax. He's not our problem long term. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I think Bauer is safe, but uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to say Kershaw's not going to win the Cy Young because I just don't think he's going to get enough starts. To do that, there's going to be other worthy pitchers that are going to have four or five more starts than him at a minimum. Which is uh, why so. I said everything has to fall the right way. If the Dodgers sure. use a six-man rotation, it's not going to work out, obviously. Yep, no, un- understood. All right, let's do a bold award prediction and a bold team prediction. Let's do them together. Scott, go first. Uh, give me a bo- uh, some award winner that you think is going to happen and uh, predict one of the uh, team division winners. You know, some of my colleagues have been pushing for Otani to be a good long shot pick for MVP, and I can see it. Although I wish they would pick a lane with him. I th- when he came over, I thought, why don't they just have him pitch all the time? I think the hitting is a mistake. And then I, I realized that he was far more talented as a hitter and an offensive player than I ever expected. I think, and then look, Otani wants to do both things. And, and the reason, one of the reasons the Angels were able to sign Otani is because they gave him the option to play both ways. Or some other teams like, no, no, you, you, you really want you as a pitcher or whatever. Narrative is always going to be a part of who wins awards. And if the Angels wind up, I don't think the A's are great. And this is a lesser Houston team. I still think Houston is legitimately the favorite in that division. But I could see the Angels maybe stealing that division if their pitching is a little bit better than expected. And I actually like a lot of their developmental minds in that 
organization. So I, I can see the case. I, I'm not saying Otani's going to win MVP. I mean, you're going to pick the MVP for your life. You would pick Mike Trout every time. But there's a little bit of voter fatigue with Trout. I think there's a rate, there's a legitimate chance if you know you played the season a thousand times. I think there's a couple of monster Otani seasons that would come out. And I think he'd be the type of person that voters would want to vote for. I like it. And a team prediction? I think the Marlins are going to be a lot better than their project projection. Their over-under was anywhere from 71 to 72. Look, the Mets look wonderful on paper. And the uh, Braves have been the class of that division. Philadelphia is still talented. Washington's still talented. But I found myself wanting to draft all five of the Marlins starters. And then they started getting all trendy and pricey. And I didn't get as much of it as I wanted to. The question is going to be how much they're going to hit. Uh, they certainly didn't hit opening day, although the, the Tampa Bay staff, uh, in part you know, Tyler Glass now the starter, they're going to make a lot of teams look bad. But I think I think the Marlins can be around an 80-win team. I thought they were undervalued in the over-under market, even if fantasy. In fact, it may be a case of the fantasy pitching was drafted so proactively that was the tip-off that maybe people are sleeping on the Marlins a little bit. I think they're going to be seven or eight wins better than expected. You know what? I'll, I'll agree with that take. I think that there are going to be better than the predictions. Uh, ATC projections have simulated the season. They have a 0.4% chance of winning the division. So that would be a bold pick if they did happen to win. Um, Ruvain, how about your uh, give me an award and give me a, a team situation prediction? Well, actually, I gave you the award with the cursor because that was my bold prediction. But I'm going to give you two team predictions. First of all, with the Seattle Mariners, I think they're going to make the playoffs. I think they're going to somehow sneak their way in. I think it's that the that the Rays are going to stumble a little bit and that the Mariners are just going to sneak in there for one of the wild card spots. Um, I think they're going to bring up Kalenic within a couple of weeks. I think they're going to bring, end up bringing up Julio Rodriguez also sometime this season if they're showing that they're hitting their stride and they just want to put a ridiculous lineup because he was raking in the spring also. So I, I would watch for the Mariners to make a really nice push and a very quiet, very quiet in the beginning of the season, but then make a push toward midsummer to see them make the playoffs. And my second bold prediction, and this is just for the NL Central in general, I think the winner of the NL Central will either have a 500 record or below. I think they're going to be the NFC East of this past year where a team couldn't get over 500. I think that a team who will have an 81 and 81 record could win division. Ah, that would be pretty hard to do. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. They're, they're pretty uh, close. Uh, I'll, either, I'll one... let, me ask, let me ask you really quick. Did either one of you guys see a favorite in that division? If I, if I you know, put your feet to the fire and said, like, I'm going to buy you a new house if you pick the NL Central winner, yeah. who would you pick? It, it it's clearly the Brewers. That was going to be my my bold prediction. Okay, I I think it's the Brewers. Um, uh, I I don't think that they're a ninety win team, but I think eighty six, eighty seven wins. And and they have two really good starters. They have Brandon Woodruff and they have Corbin Burns. That's a pretty good one two yeah. punch right there. Yep. it's question marks everywhere else though. Well, plus Freddie Peralta is just ready to explode, man. I don't know what they're going to do with him. What the role's going to be? He pitched two wipeout innings in opening day. There's a guy, much like, like Dustin May, and I guess he's in the Dodger rotation to start the season. It's one of those cases where I know this guy's going to throw good innings. I don't know how many innings. I don't know where they're going to come. I don't know there are going to be innings that apply to fantasy value as far as wins or saves are concerned. But I think they're going to be such wipeout ratios that I want them anyway. Uh, I think Peralta is, I could have easily used him as my pitching you know, bold prediction or breakout. I think this is going to be a dynamite Peralta season. Yeah, and Yelich is, is undervalued. I think he's going to jump back to close to where he was. Um, and, you know, the betting markets have been pretty down on the Brewers over the years, and they've always uh, outperformed, so I, I like that. Uh, my my uh, prediction for award, uh, Tyler Glass now to win the Cy Young Award. 
Um, yeah, look look at today's outing. And yes, six innings, six strikeouts, no runs, one hit. But the number that I look at is zero walks. What was Glassnow's problem the last couple of years? Walks. He only had a two-pitch arsenal. It's now a three-pitch arsenal, and he used it well this year. He looks absolutely fine top to bottom. Um, health is always a question, but if he pitches you know, a full season, we're talking 250 strikeouts approaching and a Cy Young Award. Uh, Let's on a remember, good he made 12 starts in 2019. His ERA was 1.78. He looked. I remember thinking this guy is going to be you know, much like the the light went on for Giolito in the last couple of years. I felt like it was going on for Glass now, and then he got hurt at the wrong time. The fact that he just got back on the field last year was a, was a positive for him. I mean, fourteen strikeouts per nine innings still could be wild at times. He walked a few too many. He had seven wild pitches, which led the majors. But he is a monster, and it's is it kind of funny how. Not only did Tampa Bay absolutely rook the Pirates in the Chris Archer trade, but now they have Chris Archer back too. If they can make something out of him, Meadows hit a home run today. So if you're if you're a Pirates fan, you're not going to want to watch a lot of Tampa Bay Rays games. <laughs> or maybe you do. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and you know, even with the whole walk problem, his WHIP over the last two seasons is one point zero one. That's with a bad walk problem. Uh, he gets rid of the walks. This is a sub one ER uh, WHIP guy. Um, he's going to get you ratios, going to get you strikeouts. Um, fantastic fantasy player, and uh, I think great real life player as well. I also believe I also believe in the internal development and the brain trust. It, there's something they do right with Tampa Bay pitchers, which is why so many stories, so many breakouts happen on their watch. I think a lot of that is organizational. Yeah, and I think that he's going to pitch innings because, um, you know, you can't. I know the Rays like to, you know, have only go five innings, but there's no Snell, there's no Morton, there's no big-name guys. He's the front guy. You need to have some reliable starter pitch innings. Do the math. You can't break up innings uh, uh, as much as you like to. You need somebody to eat some innings, and I think Lasno's the right guy to do it, especially if he's efficient like he was today. They even pulled—I mean, they pulled him—it's the opening day. They pulled him six, but um, he could have easily gone eight innings with only 100 pitches today. He was great. Um, all right, let's do a quick waiver wire, our first waiver wire of the year, and uh, everyone just give a player that you think is under-owned that first week you should probably scoop up pretty soon. Start with you, Scott. Who's a waiver wire pick for you? Yeah, I, I mentioned the two guys I mentioned earlier, uh, Grossman of the Tigers, and actually a lot of guys on the Tigers are probably underrepresented, and, and Bednar in, in Pittsburgh, who I, I think is going to be a wipeout reliever, even if he's not a saves guy. Those are two guys I would certainly look for. All right, moving. I have actually two Red Sox to look for. Kike Hernandez, he's supposed to be batting leadoff. That means he doesn't score a lot of runs in that lineup, especially if he's batting right behind Devers and, and behind Bogarts and hopefully a healthy uh, J.D. Martinez who will, who will do well again. Kike Hernandez is only owned in 27% of the CBS leagues right now. And another guy in that lineup is Hunter Renfro. He's projected to have twenty-five, more than 25 home runs. Yes, he'll have a nice great average like a 238 average but he may not be splitting time he's only owned in 26 percent of leagues and also in cps and you know what he's a guy who if you need a power guy you weren't able to get one at the end of the draft he's available in a lot of leagues three quick batters and two closers for me jazz chisholm available in 30 percent of cbs leagues batted six today gonna play gonna steal bases by the way um how about josh rojas for arizona 25 percent owned in cbs let off today for arizona uh, that's a good sign. And how about Randall Grichuk? 
he he's playing now center. He's the center fielder now that Springer's out. You know, he led the Blue Jays in RBIs last year. He actually had the game-winning hit today, or what turned to be the game-winning hit. Um, very undervalued there. Uh, and a couple of closers. Pick him up while you can. Hector Neris, he was, uh, Joe Girardi announced he's a closer. He's less than 50% owned on CBS. Pick him up. Uh, you know, pay something for him. And uh, a little bit a little bit deeper, Emmanuel Classe. Um, I think he's going to be the closer and get the most saves in the Indians this year. Uh, Karinczak came in this today when he was the team was down three um there's no reason to think that Karinczak's the guy Karinczak walks way too many people Wickren just doesn't have the stuff to be a stopper Class A throws 99 miles an hour got great action on his pitches uh 60% ground ball rate which he's done all his minors career uh it's going to be Class A uh who's the uh prize from the uh Kluber trade, I believe. Let me sneak in two more guys. I, the, both the players I mentioned are under 5% rostered in Yahoo, so there may be some people listening who they don't need to dig that deep. Miguel Cabrera, by the savant, baseball savant expected stats, should have had a much better average last year than he had. He hit the ball much better than the average reflects. Hit a home run opening day. He's playing some first base, and a lot of times hitters don't engage or, or hold their offensive value as well when they're asked to DH all the time. Even if Cabrera isn't a great fielder, I mean, you can kind of hide him at first base. I think that might lead to maybe a renaissance season where he hits about 270. It hits something between 20 and 25 home runs. He's probably going to hit 25 home runs on the pace he was on last year. And he's not a 250 hitter. He's 10% rostered in Yahoo. And a player, a pitcher who's 30% rostered, again, just walks and strikeouts leading you to good places. Logan Webb, and he was getting snapped up left and right in all the industry leagues. But he's still... Only 30% rostered in Yahoo, so in a common standard public league, you can probably still get your hands on him. I think he's going to be a very reliable, one of those mixed league starters. He's not going to win the league for you or anything, but I think he might be good enough that you end up using him most of the season as like your five, your four, your six, somewhere in there, just a reliable arm. Again, let's let's trust. The walks and strikeouts rate can become relevant to us quickly. I know it's spring training, and you have to throw a lot of grains of salt with that but when i see that kind of walk strikeout rate i think that's worthy of a speculative pickup right away i like it let's do one mailbag question really pertinent for the today um badger maniac says referring to luis castillo today who gave up uh, some seven eight runs uh, in in his outing today you know it's a bad start in his league he says we draft on this coming saturday but you get to keep the stats for all the thursday to sunday games before roster moves can make meaning if you would draft luis castillo you would be getting him but you would have all of his stats that appeared today which were obviously not good and of course that affects what you would pay. So he says, how much would you reduce his auction price in being, being uh, consideration of what he did today? It's a very interesting question. Any thoughts, Scott? It's a great question. You know, it's funny. One of the concerns we, we talked about this on the breakfast table podcast in our last edition, Michael Salfino and I were wondering how much Eugenio Suarez playing shortstop would affect the Reds pitchers. And, Lo, lo and behold, first couple of innings, uh, Suarez, he screwed up a double play that would have gotten Castillo out of a jam, and then he made another error, I think, in the second inning. Castillo certainly didn't pitch well, and he has to own that. But I would, it's really hard to, to, to actually put a pinpoint on how much would you take down his value. It would come, a lot of it would come down to, I've played in leagues before where you drafted a few days into the season, and a lot of times you would have the option of starting somebody or reserving somebody. If you could reserve Castillo and not have to take the tax of these eight earned runs, 
then I would say just pretend this didn't happen. I would say sure. value him the way you did a week ago. I don't think anything's changed. If you have to accept the beating that he took, if, if the rules mandate that he must be in your lineup, then I think just it has to have some value to you, a couple of bucks down. But my my big takeaways here is I, I don't think there's anything wrong with Luis Castillo. And I think there's a decent chance that the Suarez experiment is not going to last that long. I, I don't think the Reds are – I think it's a short leash on it. And if there's more hiccups in, in April, I don't think Suarez will be playing shortstop on May 1st. Yeah. Anything to add, Ruve? Yeah, I don't think you can go by one game. I think you can. You just have to live with those stats. I mean, there was in back in 2015, Jacob Degrom lasted two and two thirds against the Phillies. He gave up like eight runs. Does that mean he's not worth having in your roster? I don't think so. A couple of years ago, Tuffy Rhodes. This is going way back. He had three home runs off of Gooden on a, on opening day. If people drafted after that, were you going to draft Tuffy Rhodes for more than he was? And what about the Japanese games when there were Japanese games prior to the other games, like a week before, and they were drafts after that? Remember how much Hunter Strickland went for after those games after he had two saves? Were those two saves really worth the value that you spent on, on in the auction or or in, in, the, in the drafting? I don't think so. I, I think you just leave it the way it is. Keep it because you're still going to get the great Luis Castillo. And you know what? Maybe Luis Castillo got the bad one out of his system already, and he's good the rest of the year. You don't want to miss out on that. Yeah, the only concern is if you think that it's injury-related, that something was wrong. If you think that, then you know, you're going to drop him quite a bit. If you don't think it was that, that it was just a bad day, Suarez messed him up, whatever it is, um, you're pretty much going to draft him at full price. I will say, though, that the shallower the league, maybe you want to drop him a little bit because in, in a deeper league, the ratio beatings won't hurt you as much. In a shallower league, it will hurt you more because the ratios are all going to be better. Um, and you can prob- the replacement level is going to be higher anyways. So I'd probably tilt a little bit dropping him in, in shallow leagues. Deep leagues, I think you might, you, it might be a buying opportunity because you might get a, a small discount where it's worth it to take, even, even, even rostering the ADRA over three innings today. You know? Let's not forget Brandon Woodruff, Hugh Darvish, Clayton Kershaw, Kyle Hendricks, Jack Flaherty, anybody who fired up their baseball package to watch those guys today was frustrated. I mean, Flaherty had a million runs in his back pocket and couldn't get out of the fifth inning. Hendricks was down 2 nothing, two batters into the game. Isn't Brian Hayes uh, just a really fun player? Yeah. I think a lot of people were in on Woodruff before the season. We, we've talked earlier about Kershaw being a Cy Young candidate. You know, obviously, you Darvish is terrifically talented. You know, these guys, they're, they're creatures of habit. They have routines. Some pitchers, again, you, you want to try to figure out the why. I want to know. I, I didn't watch the Reds game closely. I would want to try to get a report on where was Castillo's velocity at. Was he dealing with a blister problem? Was it was there a pitch he wasn't confident in? You know, is there anything granular we can point to that maybe and you can get tripped up with that stuff sometimes? But at least where was the velocity at? Some guys, you know, maybe Kershaw didn't like pitching in Colorado because it was cold today. Stuff like that. Um, there's a lot of big name pitchers who aren't going to be on top of their games when the season starts. We just have to live with that on some level. Yep, I agree. It's a very good approach. All right, Ruvain, let's do a quick uh, injury update. What do you got today? Okay, we'll start with Nate Pearson, who's still dealing with a groin injury. He's still just doing long tossing. He still doesn't have a scheduled bullpen set, a session set up, so he may still be out for a while. Uh, Shohei Otani was dealing with a blister during spring training, but he seems to be well now. But that's something to watch for because blisters can and do reoccur. Uh, Sonny Gray is on the aisle right now. He's, uh, they said he only miss, may miss a couple starts due to his back. That's also something to watch because backs can flare up, especially when it's colder weather. That's something to watch for. Jimon Choi had knee surgery. 
So they know that he'll be out for at least a couple of weeks. So you may want to pick up someone like a Yandy Diaz who may get more playing time over there at first base. George Springer, at the end of spring training, they were saying he was only day-to-day -day with the oblique, and now he went on the on the aisle for it. I did mention before that non-pitchers average 35 days on the aisle with an oblique injury. That's something to watch for. I'm not even going to mention Eloy because I think everyone in the entire world knows what's going on with Eloy Jimenez, that he's going to be out for four to five months with that pectoral surgery. Eduardo Rodriguez, a guy who we, me, you, and Ariel, you mean you, we were both very high on. He's dealing with dead arm, and he's starting off the year on the aisle. That's nothing to be overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly concerned with. I think they're just managing him, making sure they don't do any permanent damage to him. Kyle Lewis, the f the reigning rookie of the year for the, uh, for the Seattle Mariners, will start the year and has started the year on the IL with a deep bone bruise in his knee. Taylor Trammell was named the starting center fielder. He's an interesting guy to watch because he was also a very highly touted rookie uh, prospect and everything like that, so that's something to watch. Robbie Ray, this is a little bit lower down. Robbie Ray will begin the season on the IL, which is retroactive to March 29th. He was diagnosed with, an, with a bruised elbow. Um, Blue Jays manager Charlie Montoya actually said that TJ Zook, I don't even know what that is, is going to start in his place, and there's no real timetable for when Robbie Ray will come back. And another actually injury from today, Adam Hazley was pulled with hamstring tightness from today's game with, uh, the, for, for the Phillies. He was replaced with Roman Quinn. For the, all those people who had Adalberto Mondesi, you want a steals guy? If Roman Quinn gets playing time, he may be that filling guy for that month, for that couple of weeks that you can use to fill in for those stolen bases. Great piece of advice there. Um, all right. Well, comes to the end of our show. This is a great one. So many good topics and points and viewpoints. And uh, Scott, one of the things I love about you is just that your process of, um, you know, the way you think about things, that you're thinking uh, at a much higher level and not just the nitty gritty, but the how and the why. And really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And, uh, you know, kudos to you guys for all the success you've had. And uh, I, I wish you uh, fun and, and hopefully a healthy fantasy baseball season. Thank you. Uh, why don't you just tell everybody where uh, we can uh, see your work uh, and follow you? Sure. Uh, proud member of the Yahoo Fantasy uh, family. I've, I've been there 12 years now. It'll be 13 years this summer. I'll be writing a closing time arg article, which is basically a wrap of everything that happened the previous day in fantasy, about three or four days a week. And uh, you can catch me on Twitter if you're over there. I'll, I'll link to my work. And we can talk, talk about any number of things. I, I'm a fan of all sports. I'm a golf fan. I'm a hockey fan. Um, I'm certainly a huge baseball fan. So if you want to talk about music, sports, life, uh, Scott underscore Pianowski on Twitter. And again, my work is at Yahoo Sports. Awesome. Moving. Uh, how about you? You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out injury updates on a daily basis. How long they're going to be out for, giving my medical opinion. Um, and who's going to replace them how, and how, how well they're going to do and whether they're going to last for that long. I also have a weekly article for Rotobuller discussing these injuries a little bit more in depth. All right. Final ATC projections are up on Fangrass, Sportsline, and on Rotobuller, which are the sites that I write for. Uh, so please uh, check them out. And you can follow me on Twitter at ATCNY. It's only five letters, so hopefully you can remember that, ATCNY. And, of course, you can listen to me every week here on the show, the Beat the Shift podcast. Once again, thank you so much, Scott Pianowski of Yahoo Sports, for coming on the show. And from all of us here at Beat the Shift, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangrass. Follow us on Twitter at 
beat underscore shift underscore pod.